Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Rocky, the CTO at Magenic, and we discuss the concept of A, B, and C developers, new cloud trends that we'll see in the future, and the benefit automated testing has played in shaping the quality of software. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Rocky! Hi, how are you doing? Look at that setup you've got going on. Got the microphone, the headphones, everything. Yeah, well, I have, uh, I do a fair amount of this stuff, so. Great <laughs> uh, training videos, all sorts of things, so. Oh yeah, you get to create some training videos? Yeah, one of, you know, I'm the CTO at Magenic, but then I also am a professional speaker and author and have been doing that for about 20 years, so. Um, so I have a kind of a varied uh, career, <laughs> I guess is the way to put it. Are you writing a book right now? I just finished one actually on uh, the new Microsoft Blazor technology. Ooh, what's that? That's a, a new way of building web apps. It's based on top of a thing called WebAssembly. So it allows languages other than JavaScript to be used for building web applications. Does it run on more than Internet Explorer? It, uh, it actually, it comes from uh, Firefox originally. It's a Mozilla project. Well, the, the Blazor part is Microsoft, but WebAssembly is Mozilla. But they managed to even get Apple on board. So that, that, that was the sticking point, actually. Everybody else was like, yeah, yeah, this is a great idea. And Apple's like, wait a minute. It might undercut my store revenue. <laughs> so, <laughs> Which, which it might, because this lets like C, C++ programs run in the browser. So um, the, the need to actually build an app and, and deploy it through a store, you know, it's, this is a big deal. It's exciting, right? That's something it that is. I don't think it I've is. seen before. This is something brand new, being able to run that in the browser. Yeah, you know, it's, it, it's something that uh, I think a lot of us, myself anyway, have been lobbying for since uh around 2000 probably when when uh but it it uh it's finally actually here and so now it's just a matter of seeing how it changes the industry over time so what's the uh title of the book we'll give it a shout out here it's uh well it's also tied in with my uh the open source framework project that i've been working on for 23 years um, so it's called using csla blazer and WebAssembly. And CSLA is the project you've been working on. Mm -hmm. What's that about? Yep. That is a uh, business logic framework. Every, everybody uh, has access to all sorts of UI frameworks and all sorts of ways to talk to databases, but there are you know, almost no uh, formalized ways to create and organize your business logic. And that's what CSLA is all about. That's pretty interesting. So you formalize your business logic through this framework. Why, why did you, like, where, what was the moment that you said, hey, uh, I'm frustrated enough, I need to build this thing? So, yeah, no, my, my, the, my first real job after I, I graduated from college in, a, in the late 80s in, in a recession. Um, so it took a while to find a real job, but I did. And... Uh, the guy that I worked for was just super um, 
rigorous, I guess you'd say, about uh, having everybody's code be the same. And I rankled, you know, right out of university, and and I'm like, ah, you're you're you know, harshing my mellow, or or uh, <laughs> I don't even know what the terms were back then, but uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, art code is art, right? Um, and uh, and he's like, no, 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 I'm my, you know, if you're working here, your code looks exactly like everybody else's, and um, and then we got bought by a company who had no standards at all, and. Um, so my attitude changed, I did a 180 because seeing um, all the code the, of our new employer, um, it was horrible. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, it was, and I'm like, wow. And yeah, so then, you know, fast forward a few years, I ended up on this big project um, in working in the Microsoft technology stack. And um, it, it was clear there had to be some way to get some consistency in, in, the way that things were being built uh, across our team. And so that was really the kernel of what became the CSLA framework. And then it had kind of exploded, right? It's a pretty popular framework out there. It is, yeah. And uh, I, I think because it's relatively unique, there's, there's not a lot of competition, very, very few uh, people or companies have ever even tried to create any any formalized business logic layer uh, support. Uh, they just assume, oh, developers are going to you know figure it all out, uh, and uh, um, and it's been around now for you know, the original uh, com version before .NET uh, you know, came out in ninety seven, so it's twenty three years ago, and, uh, and and it really became popular when .NET showed up. You know, in the 2001 to uh, 2003 timeframe, um, yeah, that that yeah, I think and it was a confluence of things. That was also the point that the, the internet, as we know it, had finally started to really gel. Um, you know, back when I started, um, the 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 code was available on a CD if you bought my book, <laughs> and uh, you could email me and I would send it to you. But there was no real uh, yeah, the websites didn't exist the way we think of them until the late 90s. And uh, even then, it, it didn't, uh, the internet as we know it kind of gelled in the early 2000s, right? So, yeah, I, I, I remember um, working at a biomedical manufacturing company in the early 90s. And, um, and I was, I've always been a interested in leading edge, interesting new technologies. And so I managed to get our uh, corporate mini computer set up with, um, geez, I wanna say it was like a 1200 baud modem that would dial up once an hour to another company here in the Twin Cities that uh, was gracious enough to, to do uh, relays. So we were able to get email uh, relays and also what at the time was called Usenet uh, which uh, I think maybe still exists, but basically it's like a predecessor to uh, online web forums is the way to think about it. And uh, yeah, so that, that was like our connection to the outside world uh, at that time was this uh, hourly, you know, we would send emails and then an hour later they would actually go out into the rest of the world and <laughs> it was interesting. Back in the day, man. I love it. And I love, yeah, yep. I love the progression of technology. And uh, I have taken a positive mindset 
Although I think it's harder to have a positive mindset. I think it takes more effort, but I've taken a positive mindset towards the future with all the rise of technology. Well, I think it has changed the world for the better on the whole. Um, yeah, the internet in particular, but yeah, I think a lot of other technologies, aircraft, uh, medicine, you know, yeah, it's true. But if, I think if you look at the internet as a whole, it's not an unmitigated good, it's a tool. And, and it has been used for some good things and some bad things. But on the whole, um, you, you think about the whole thing that's going on now with the pandemic. And my wife and I talk about this from time to time. You know, just think if you were back 10, 15, 20 years before um, video conferencing, before the, the you know, just immediacy of, of communication that exists. And you know, back then it was all telephones, right? And you only talk to the people that you knew and you talk to them one at a time. And the idea of being able to work from home uh, and, and collaborate with you know, teams, you know, like at Magenic, we frequently have uh, feature teams, development teams uh, for our clients that have members that are in Manila and then some that might be in California and some in Boston and some in the middle of the country. You know, and this is not new because of the pandemic. This is just the way we've done business for years. But, um, but that's why we're largely unaffected by the pandemic is that our teams are, you know, have, have at their disposal uh, tools, you know, like Microsoft Teams or Slack or Zoom and, you know, all sorts of uh, developer productivity tools that are enabled by the, the internet that we have today. And, uh, yeah, you stop and think, boy, if we didn't have all these things, this would be really rough. I mean, it's already really rough. I don't mean to, you know, diminish what's the impact, but um, it's just staggering to think how bad this could have been if it were 20 years ago. And so were your sales teams pretty much remote too? Well, that's our biggest challenge, All honestly, is our sales teams are were not remote. And uh, you know, sales is, is a, a high touch business, very personal. Um, you know, it's, it's, yes, you get good communication by uh, video chat, but it's, you, you just don't, all the body language, you know, you only see people from their like shoulders up. Right? I know. They'll um, see my and, hands. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's right. So, uh, no, our salespeople, uh, it's, it's difficult for them. I mean, they're, they're the kind of people that like to be interactive with other people. That's why they're in the job. Um, and, and their job is almost infinitely harder um, by not being able to uh, have that high bandwidth communication. Dude, I'm struggling too, because I mean, I know I get to talk to a lot of people and I do the podcasts and, you know, 90% of the interviews are remote right but usually i'm doing remote interviews and then i'm going and speaking on stages and getting out or i'm visiting companies like i'll come visit like a company after i talk with them so i'm out talking to teams and i'm always you know either talking on here or out talking in the world and then i just cut off that like in-person exposure and then it's a hundred percent zoom and it's uh it's it's more difficult but right now the way things are going at least in florida where i am uh it seems like what pandemic there's like some weird stuff at the gym, like every other machines off, but like no one's wearing masks at the gym. Um, pretty much the grocery store. It's like 20% of the people are wearing masks. There's still like the arrows on the grocery store, but 
in in large, it's it's starting to feel like it didn't happen, which is great. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that's great. That's that's I'm 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 less optimistic because I've I, I have really read through a lot of the 1918 uh, swine flu. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm quite concerned that the, the yeah you know, what happened back then is that we got through the first wave and then the second wave hit and was several times worse. And uh, yeah, which is probably going to happen. It's probably going to happen, right? Like when, especially it looks like timing wise, the second wave will be in the winter area where we have like bad cold and flu seasons, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it could. Yeah, you know, I mean, our world is a lot more immediately connected, and uh, we're more more mobile than people were in 1918. So, you know, back then it took almost a year for the second wave to come. Uh, it's more likely, I think, this will just take a few months. It could be this fall, right? Yeah, and I, I would also like to point out that the area I live is a rural area. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I do not live in a big city. I live in a small town. We have 50,000 people. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not, ah, that's not, I, people I, I grew up in a, I grew up in a town of 1200 people. So. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. I think when I was your, your, up, your town, it, your town's big, man. Big. <laughs> it's big now though, because I'm an, I'm a native here. And when I was growing up, it was small. Now it, mm. I was like, Oh, this is a big city. And I started traveling to big cities. I was like, Nope, it's not a big city. Yeah, right, right. It's all relative, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, it is. But I like, I personally like the density I grew up in uh, was very, it was not dense at all. Like Mm -hmm. we would drive for 20 minutes and not see anyone. Like I just kind of grew up in, uh, you know, Florida woods. And that's what it was like for me at least. And uh, I know you live out, you live in Minnesota, right? Yes. So do you have some property out there? Are you pretty self-sustaining? Do you do any farming or anything like that? Well, we live in a suburb now, um, you know, because of course it's difficult. I grew up in the middle of Minnesota in the middle of several hundred acres of forest and on a lake and um, our nearest full-time neighbors were a mile away. So um, pretty, pretty remote and we still have that property and, uh, it, it, and it was kind of a hobby farm, although it's heavily forested. <clears throat> and, uh, but it's still challenging because there's no internet there. Um, uh, I think about three years ago, AT&T finally put in a tower. So there is cell phone, but only one, only one carrier, but there is cell phone in that area. Just wait until Musk gets that Starlink going, man. Then you'll have the, then you'll have what you need. Well, I had looked at one point into the, what is it? HughesNet, I think. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, at the time, at least that required a phone line. And uh, it's also, getting a reliable phone line out there is not easy either. It's pretty rural. No. <laughs> but at least you have a fallout area, right? You can get your bug out bag. You can go out there and you can survive off the land. Yeah, no, it's, and it's a beautiful area. I, we, we still go up there quite frequently because um, it's just, uh, well, for me, there's of course a lot of memories. I grew up there, but in addition, it's, it is, it's just very calm and peaceful and, and uh, an enjoyable place to be. And, uh, now, now I could actually go up there and at least do some limited work thanks to the cell tower being nearby. But uh, it used to be a great place to go to unplug. Um, it's like, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry I missed your call, but I literally had no service. You know, it's a great way to answer that problem. 
it's tough. You know, I've recently started experimenting. I'm on month, I think I'm on the month two or three. Jake can comment if he knows a better one on the chat, but I'm on month like two or three of no notifications, zero. Mm. Um, I mean, I have it so my wife can barge if she like calls me multiple times. Okay. Uh, she can get through, but I live with my phone on do not disturb and zero notifications. And I just, I, I got the idea from, from someone or something a few months ago. And I, I tried it at first with a couple apps, like the apps that bother me the most. Mm -hmm. And then, and what that forced me to do is it allows me to work differently. Now it's like, okay, I have periods of focus. And in this period of focus, I'm only doing this thing. And I feel like that discipline, which is kind of hard to do, but that discipline of doing that gives me so much freedom because I don't have notifications bothering me 24 seven. I know that I'm going to go into this work block for two hours and there's not a thing in the world that's going to bother me. And, and I get my best work done like that. I'm always experimenting with productivity things. Sure. And that's a good one. I, I think you're on to something. I, I should do that. I, I have my phone set so that it only rings for people I know. Oh, that's um, good. So I, I guess I'm, I'm halfway to where you are. <laughs> you know, if, if anybody who tries to call me, um, they can leave me a voicemail unless like you said, it's my wife or my kids or, you know, my dad, somebody that, uh, I actually, um, want to have their call. I get, you know, but I get, you know, being in my role, I get just constant calls from, uh, vendors that want to sell products or services or recruiters that think that I need to hire people or, you know, um, my, my phone is just lit up almost constantly with inbound, uh, telemarketing basically. Um, you know, oh, yeah. plus of course it's my actual cell phone too, in addition to being my work phone. So then I just like everybody else, um, you know, I'm getting calls so I can consolidate all my credit cards or um, well, you send, must. send my social security number to the IRS or, you know, whatever it is. Rocky, my grandma, all right, in Peru, she just inherited $10 million. Oh, nice, nice. <laughs> and I just need like 50 grand for the legal fees and I'll give you 200 back. <laughs> I, clearly, you should take up that offer. That's... Yes. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about nature. I have found, and I know I've said this a couple of times, but I found that uh, I go out to Colorado. Well, first I hiked all of the available like known mountains in the North Carolina, Georgia, tri-state area. And so my wife and I, we started with one, then we did two, and then we went back the next year and we're like, let's get like five done. And we just kept doing all the major hiking trails nice. up and down. Then we we were going to plan our, our hike like year five and we're just like, we've done them all. Let's go to California. Uh, uh, Colorado and do those. And what I've learned doing those hikes on the mountains and doing something difficult is, is an entirely different experience than sitting down and learning from a book or taking a workshop or a class. And I've found that spending time out in nature, whether it's climbing a mountain or going to a place where it's particularly clear and looking at the stars, uh, I find that those moments are impactful on my journey and you seem, seem to spend a lot of time in nature and grew up around it and got that exposure what do you think of that i agree i, I think regardless of whether you grew up in, in it or not just being in uh i don't know out, uh, even in a park i think um is rejuvenating at, at some kind of deep fundamental personal level 
Um, and, and you're right. I grew up, uh, my, my youth was, uh, pretty unusual in that, uh, my, and my dad was a game warden, a conservation officer. And so, uh, we, we grew up surrounded by fishing and hunting and canoeing and boating and, you know, forest, uh, basically just everything like that. And, um, so I read old books and I think, you know, like from, you know, uh, 100 150 200 years ago and i think wow you know we did we did those things um maybe, maybe easier because we had better tools but uh um and i still do we still spend a lot of time uh on the water minnesota has lakes everywhere and a lot of time in the forest and now my wife and i over the last several years have started uh rving um and going especially in the winter we go somewhere warmer <laughs> And, uh, so like two years ago, we went to a place called Amboy Crater, which is between, uh, Palm Springs and Las Vegas, basically in, in the middle of the desert. And it's, uh, an extinct volcano. And we spent the night there. Um, and it was phenomenal. I have not seen stars like that since I was uh, a kid, because we would go out in the winter uh, on the ice because our lake would freeze over. Uh, which not everybody understands, but, but in Minnesota, the lakes freeze with enough ice that you can drive large trucks on them. <laughs> um, but we would go out and, and lay in, in the middle of the night on the uh, ice uh, and just stare up at the stars because there was no light pollution of any sort. And that's, that's hard to find. And out at this Amboy Crater, it was at least as good. It was absolutely phenomenal and the air was dry i suppose so that helped so i'm going to write that down as a recommendation earlier this this week i was talking with uh the cto at t systems which is like t-mobile deutsch telecom and uh he he actually one of his hobbies fascinating guy too i can send you some information after the, the show to look him up but uh one of his hobbies is actually astral photography like he goes oh. out and he takes these pictures of like the stars and the milky ways and stuff and so he was sharing with me a couple different spots. He goes, there's actually like these communities where they don't allow the light. Like you can only use red light when you're out there. They're like anti-light pollution areas so that you can see the stars really well. And so it's just, you know, Googling for it and finding it. But if you're on your RV stuff, even if you're cool with boondocking and, and stuff like that mm -hmm. to get like a cool night out somewhere, uh, there are these collections of places where they have that, like you can only have certain color lights and so you can see the stars really nice. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. That would be fun. That's, and we do, yeah, a limited amount of boondocking. We're not set up for, uh, and, and for people listening that don't know what boondocking is, it's you know, just self-sufficient. You go out in the middle of usually the desert, some sort of public land and, um, just, you got, you bring your own water, you bring your own propane and, and whatever else you need and, and, uh, pack in and pack out. Um, and, uh, there are people that do it a lot. Uh, we only do it a little cause we're not, we don't have a, uh, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. It, it's not meant to do for like two weeks. Like, you know, you it's basically, I guess, yeah, you explained it well. Boondocking is when you're RVing at night, but you're not hooked up to services. Like you're not hooked up to the water and you're not hooked to electricity. And so yep. you just go out for a night and you know, the RV is pretty, you could be pretty normal for like a night or two. Yep. on the resources and that's all you really need really i mean <laughs> mm -hmm. right well and we do yeah and that's the level we do but if you really um get into it people live full-time boondocking they'll oh yeah 
Yeah, and and they'll just stop into a place where they can refresh their water and and empty their sewer, you know, once every week or two. And I'm like, wow, that's that's um, dedication, dedication. It's dedication. Yeah, we don't want to say extreme. No. <laughs> it's it's dedicate. It's passion, dedication, yeah. passion. Well, and I understand it because it, it is, you know, just being out and knowing that you're probably the only people for miles and miles. Um, and, and is it's peaceful. It's just really, really refreshing. It will help with that clarity of mind. And I think it's something that, well, I know it's something for myself I've scheduled. I do at least twice a year and go out, spend a week somewhere, spend it quiet and spend it walking around. And then I definitely like will check in because I'm an entrepreneur and I have a emerging business and things like that. So I'm definitely spending an hour a day checking in because you just, I don't have that I'm not Bezos, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't have right. that luxury, right? Um, but let's talk a little bit more about technology. So one thing I was somewhat impressed with uh, about Magnetic is you guys sent me over uh, some of the, some of the, like PDFs, right? That had like white papers, I guess you would call them, mm-hmm. that had, the difference here was I found these white papers like pretty useful. I didn't find them filled with a lot of, of, fluff i found them actually like pretty actionable and useful and so i want to talk a couple about them i want to talk about this concept of devops and what's going on in devops from your perspective well i think what you just said is interesting because uh at magenic for years we've had this back and forth between me and the uh and our marketing uh group because i really don't like fluffy uh content and 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 marketing is always trying to, you know, get more, um, you know, marketing content. And I'm like, well, I, you know, it's just, it's such a struggle to create content that actually has some meat to it and yet is not technical. And um, I'm not going to claim to have perfected it, but we've, I, th- I think, finally arrived at a compromise. And I'm glad to hear that you you found the uh, the content useful and yet, we we've we know we've heard other people say that it's accessible um, to folks that are not super technical. So that you know, yay, that's a win. <laughs> um, you know, specific to DevOps, uh, you know, it's interesting because a lot of the core concepts in DevOps have been things that uh, people, my, myself and others, lots of others, have watched over our careers and said, man, it would be so much better if X, Y, or Z happened on a regular basis. And yet, usually those things were so hard to do that you're like, man, I, I wish we could have continuous integration builds or, or automated testing or you know, automated security scans. But the expense of setting acquiring the product setting them up keeping them running uh for for decades has been higher than the value you would get out at least a lot of us felt that way and so i I think it's a combination of of things where we're finally at a point that it's cost effective to do a lot of these things partially because of commercial products and a lot of it is because of uh, the growth and acceptance of open source and um, also the marketing, for lack of a better word, the, the term DevOps 
captured imaginations of people that are semi-technical or non-technical. And somehow uh, we were able as an industry to uh, uh, convince people that it, that this DevOps thing was worth doing. Um, and, and so yeah, some of our clients are very, very good at it and have really invested in it. Others are, are not yet there and still others are on a journey. Um, and, and that's all good though. Just the fact that, um, compared to, you know, 10, 15 years ago where it was like pulling teeth to get most organizations to invest in unit testing, for example, um, that's rarely a discussion anymore. Uh, and sometimes it is with the, you, with the customers you, know, you want to work with. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess maybe that's true too, right? It's, uh, uh, self-select self-selection perhaps. Um, but it it's yeah, I, I think back, boy, you know, I mean, without unit tests, um and, and I'm not even talking about test driven development, because that's a thing unto itself, right? I'm just saying just having unit tests uh fundamentally changes the way that you can approach a lot of problems. I think it's daunting to people because the people that don't well, I mean, first of all, I fully agree with you that today it's commonplace, at least if you're working at any technology company worth their salt, right? But I, when I do get to talk to companies who are trying to make the transition or are interested in making the transition, what I find is that it's difficult for them to see, like they just see this big block of testing, right? And they're not, and they, they know test-driven development and unit tests and when to test and how to test and do you rewrite the whole application or do you do site? So they, so usually when people come to me with that, I refer them out to consultants that know how to like tease out one section of tests to bring them some business value, right? Uh, because it's hard to get into testing when you haven't been into it formally as a company. So that's a big, big transition for certain companies. It can be. And I think the, the way I always talk about it, and, and I, I, I stole this idea or borrowed it, whatever, um, from uh, uh, the guy that created NUnit originally, um, which is a .NET, probably the first .NET unit testing framework. And, um, and he and I years ago spent a lot of time speaking at conferences together. So and we had some great conversations. And his point, and, and I think it's such a great point, is that every developer tests their code. Most developers at least used to just throw their tests away afterwards. Right? You'd, you'd write a little console app or you'd write a little web app or you'd write a little, you know, some little thing, make sure your code works. And then you're like, woohoo, it works. And then you'd throw away your, your little test harness because you were done. And if all you do is use a unit testing framework to do that, those tests, instead of writing a little console app, just do it in a, a unit test. Um, and then don't throw that code away you are infinitely better off than you were before. And it's a super low bar for entry and not so intimidating if you think about it that way, as opposed to, oh, I have to have a testing strategy and, you know, I have to have stories and, you know, all, all the other things that come along with like capital T testing, right? And you're just like, no, no, no. It's, it's it just as a start point, if all you do is capture the tests that you already wrote because every developer writes them anyway and just keep them around then over time you build this big library of 
with no extra effort, right? You end up building this library of regression tests that help stabilize your code and make it possible to uh, change things without being paralyzed with fear that you're going to break something that you know was written eight years ago or something. I fully agree. I mean, when I found testing, I I was excited about it because I was doing that. I was writing the code and then writing little console app, you know, to test it and get the result. And then I would be like hitting up, <laughs> trying to get, get my stuff back or reloading it or whatever mm -hmm. I was doing. And then I saw, I, I, I think I saw this uh, like rail, I was in Ruby at the time and I saw like rails cast and he was talking about testing and he gave the example. And when I saw someone else do it and I said, Oh, it's like, a persistent test it's it's like the same mm. thing i'm doing over here i just type it over here and then i set up an environment where like it auto runs when i hit save and the file names according and then you just get that little bit done and then you get it into your template project right so when you make new projects it's like you you understand the testing suite and how it works and uh and then it just gives you confidence it gives you deploy confidence like i can't imagine how like none of my projects that I that I did early on before testing got really big, but I couldn't imagine how I would have a product that's big that doesn't have tests. Like where's the confidence when you hit deploy? <laughs> yep, exactly right. And and now we're at a point, you know, I mean, that's unit testing. And then the same thing over the last several years has really happened to user acceptance testing as well, where um, it used to be extremely manual and, uh, and, and a lot of orgs still hire testers to do manual testing, but, uh, increasingly using tools like Selenium and, and like Magenic has an open source tool that sits on top of Selenium that helps, um, manage your test suites and, and make them, uh, you know, cause that's the other thing, right? The more tests you build, that's code you have to continue to maintain over time, right? Um, but it, it's night and day, it, you know, if you take your, your app, especially a complicated business app and you build it and put it out into a test server, you know, it could take weeks before, uh, humans can test all of the, uh, the app by hand. Uh, whereas it takes minutes or hours to run these automated tests and they can be run automatically as part of your build process. And you, not to say that it 100% replaces manual, but it probably can do 80% of the job. Uh, and then you know, if they all pass, only then do you actually ask humans to do that extra 20% that's hard to automate. And it's, it's a transformative uh, thing. And, and, and over the last, well, decade, I suppose, um, it's become such a commonplace deal that from our perspective, we have... As a company, Magenic is all about software development, building custom apps for our customers. But over the last decade, we sell, <clears throat> excuse me, over the last decade, we actually, it turns out, sell direct testing, uh, automated testing services almost as much as we sell app dev. Just because companies, you know, companies that even are building their own software are like, oh yeah, we could have you guys come in and automate the testing. That would be great. So you guys will build custom apps for companies, but you will also come in and build up tests for them too? Yeah, custom exactly tests. right. Yeah, so we'll obviously build tests for the software that we build, but we'll build 
tests around software that we don't build too, because it's the, the automation of tests is a, uh, a field unto itself. Right. The, the, oh, nice. So the guy I was referring to before that I would give uh, like test stuff to, he actually got a job and is like not doing that anymore <laughs> as consulting. It was just one person I knew that could, because I can't get that deep with everybody who reaches out and ask about testing. But now when people ask about that stuff, I can just push them to you. Would that be okay? I can't say no to that. That sounds awesome. That's, it's, it's, you know, it's hard because you can find these like magical people, but then you have to really find um, companies that are magical and have a bunch of magical people at the top. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason why is like, I find an individual and they'll go back and forth between jobs and like doing it and kind of not doing it. So I get hesitant about, you know, referring stuff to them. But then I found through these types of conversations through doing the podcast, uh, I can find these companies and figure out how they think and what their executives, because it's almost like, um, it's going to be kind of lame reference here, but it's almost like a garden. It's like, I understand the gardener and their principles. So I know what's going to be growing in there is good stuff. And once you can understand the gardener's principles and how they operate their garden, then it just, it gives you confidence to be able to, to do that, to, to refer people to them. Sure. I can't argue with that. That's true. Yeah. I, you know, following this, this, uh, train of conversation, I think, um, I'm hopeful cr- crossing my fingers, <laughs> but the, the third big area that I think DevOps hopefully will impact because really, you know, a lot of the things we're, we've been talking about are, um, have become mainstream because of this whole DevOps movement. And the, the third one that I really hope becomes commonplace is, uh, secure code right? Or, you know, security around code. Organizations have, I think, always invested in security for infrastructure, uh, you know, networks and everything else. But there's been very little true investment around uh, secure coding and making sure that developers don't make a mistake that opens up a vulnerability and all that sort of thing. And same thing with everything else we've been talking about. We're at a point now where there are tools, either commercial or open source, that can do pretty comprehensive scans of your code and scans of your dependencies. And you can build these into your DevOps pipeline so that you have a, you know, nothing's perfect, but a much higher degree of confidence that your software doesn't have a SQL injection vulnerability um, you know, and, and we say, oh, we train our developers constantly not to do that sort of thing. But, you know, people get, people are human. They make mistakes. They're under tight deadlines and, and things slip through and that happens everywhere. Um, well, it's order of operations, right? It's like, well, you can either train people and hope they implement this at a later date, or you can just put a check in place that guarantees every time it will be scanned. It's like, mm-hmm. it's so so obvious, which is the right answer. So are you telling me, because... Um, I don't have experience with these. What I do now is I've got a third-party pen testing company, and every couple months we do a we we do a new pen test uh, for our product that we have over here. And so what you're saying is like I've got I happen to use Circle CI uh, for my deployments. So you're saying I could there's a product that I could like hook into the Circle CI that would do security scans. Yeah, exactly. And I mean there are several. Uh, one of the more common ones is SonarCube. Uh, just to toss an example out. Um, and so, and you can either use SonarCube as a service in the cloud, or you can set up your own SonarCube server. But uh, 
and and there are many others. That's, I'm, not, I'm not trying to endorse this one necessarily, but but do um, you like it though, personally? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. I, we we okay. act, we do. We we have our own SonarCube server running uh, at Magenic that we use for some of our customers, and some of our customers uh, use the SonarCube cloud service, and uh, you know some use a different tool, you know, competitor competitive tools, but. But yeah, it basically does static code analysis where it, as part of your build process, this thing analyzes the code and, and looks for common vulnerabilities or common uh, anti-patterns in your code and flags them. So it's powerful, right? And it, and it runs against many different languages, you know, programming languages and, and so forth. So it's not, uh, yeah, you look at like Microsoft inside of .NET has over the last few years built this concept called analyzers which are super powerful and you can build analyzers that look for uh, patterns or anti-patterns in your code that are that that you want to look for and so uh, one of my colleagues has written a whole bunch of them for my CSLA open source and he contributed them into the open source project for example so if you're using CSLA um, you it, these analyzers will help you avoid common mistakes and and you know that sort of thing which is thumbs up but that's very platform specific right that's all about .net um, whereas sonarcube is and, and a lot of these other tools are uh, well, i'm sure they don't support everything but the, you know they support .net and they support uh, java and ruby and python and you know javascript and so they're pretty comprehensive I want to talk a little bit about the name. Do you know the story of, of how the name came about? <laughs> uh, the company had a had a different name originally, and um, it wasn't magnetic, was it? I called it magnetic earlier. No, I was like, oh no, it's there so, was so much energy in the conversation, Rocky. Right, our relationship was magnetic. <laughs> it's magnetic, magentic, magenta. It's. Um, you know, the, the company had a different name and then we opened our office in California and um, a defense contractor had the same name. And so <laughs> the decision at that time was made to not fight with the people that had missiles and instead to <laughs> change, change our name. And so um, there was a, a, a brainstorming session that involved trying to take syllables out of different words like magic, technology, um, innovation. And so Magenic is kind of a mashup of, uh, um, some words and I don't remember the specific words off the top of my head, but it's, yeah, it, it includes magic and technology innovation. Um, so it sounds right though. Like when, when you hear that, when you hear Magentic, it's like, that's a word. Like it feels like that's already a word. It feels good. Yep. That's what but, you want. But there is no T in it. It's, it's Magenic. Magenic. Yep. Mudgenic. I will nope. get this. I promise. <laughs> I'm gonna nail it on the intro. <laughs> I, I, you know, I got, I gotta say that that our, if any of our salespeople in particular listen to this, they're gonna laugh their butts off because, of course, you know, almost nobody does pronounce it correctly. So it's. <laughs> It's just how we work as humans, you know. We see the our eyes. You know, I love those uh, the memes you'll see or or the graphic examples online where it'll actually be the words, but they're all misspelled or the mm -hmm. letters are out. Of, and your brain can read it fine. It's strange how that works. It's kind of beautiful in a way. 
Yeah. It, oh, I agree. It's majestic. Wow. Very nice. Well played. Uh, sir. Well played. <laughs> okay. We got to talk earlier a couple of weeks ago and you alluded to this concept of like the ABC developers. Can you break that down for me? Yeah, this is basically, if you look at the industry and uh, as a bell curve, and then divide the bell curve into three parts, which is fairly standard. So you, you start out on the leading edge with type A, and then the center is B, and then the trailing edge is C. And you can use that as a model for a lot of things, including um, more or less the distribution of the developers in our industry. And so the vast majority of developers, of course, are type B and sit in that you know, the high part of the bell curve and type B developers tend to um, be working with uh, mainstream, but not cutting edge technologies, you know, technologies that are not old, but yet are time tested, right? Proven. And um, they tend uh, to, on the whole, have a lot of business knowledge as well as tech knowledge. I mean, they're, they're the people that, you know, build business systems. And so they understand, uh, and I shouldn't, not just business, right? Science, whatever else it might be. They understand their problem domain and they understand the technology they're using. And then if you get into the type A folks, the further out you go, those, they, they, they like leading edge and then they like bleeding edge. And then, you know, they, they like the stuff that hasn't even been invented yet, but they know it's out there. Um, and, uh, you know, they're always pushing the boundaries and innovating and trying to figure out new ways to do things or improve what's already being done. And then there are type C developers that are using uh, maybe not so current technologies. They, they got themselves into a, a, a good spot and, and uh, you know, if, you know like the, the kind of common example these days are all you know, COBOL or Fortran or, you know, developers that are, are using tools and platforms that might be many decades old that are still out there that in many cases run the very foundations of our world, right? Especially like COBOL, right? Most bank, big banks and credit card companies and airlines, their core systems very well might still be running COBOL. And you and I might never see that, but it's there. And without those people keeping it working, uh, you end up like, uh, was in New Jersey with their, uh, uh, unemployment system, you know, collapsed under the, you know, recent surge. And it turns out it was all written in COBOL. And it's like, Oh yeah, well, there you go. Right. And thanks Florida too. Oh yeah. I mean, I don't, okay. I don't know if it was written in COBOL, but it definitely collapsed. And mm -hmm. I saw an article that said, uh, we're working, we've added 67 servers. And I'm like, I calculated the number of people in Florida. <laughs> I was like, what, what level? I like, what do you mean 60? It was 67 or 64 servers. Like, what are you doing over there? Why was there a need for 60 plus servers? I couldn't wrap my mind around it. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, a good friend and colleague of mine um, who's, who's otherwise retired um, spent the last several weeks working uh for uh, Alabama and getting theirs up and running again. And, and uh, I, I think it's a pretty common deal, but you know, these systems like everything, right? We, it's part of the nature of being in a, uh, 
semi-capitalistic environment where we really work on optimizations of costs and, and throughput, right? And so you optimize our, our just, it's the way our economy and our society works. You optimize for the common load because that's, you know, it's not cost effective to uh, overbuild because then you've got all that idle capacity just that you just paid for that's doing nothing, right? And that works great most of the time, of course, but then you hit these extraordinary circumstances like we're in now where the hospitals are overloaded and the unemployment systems are overloaded and you can't easily ramp some of these things up to five or 10 times or a hundred times their normal capacity because they're, they were just never built that way. It was, it was never cost effective to, you know, like where I, where I grew up, they, the hospital there might have an ICU bed or not. I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, and it was never cost effective to have one because you could just, if somebody needed one, you'd airlift them you know, to a bigger city. Well, all of a sudden, that's no longer realistic. You know, but literally, literally like overnight. Now you, you, you make some good points because like, for example, the fire station, you know, even if we take it away from digital to something physical, mm-hmm. like the fire station has a capacity and if there were like wildfires, you would have to bring in, you wouldn't build up for that thing. You'd have to bring in other trucks from other places to help fight the wildfires. We see that type of stuff happen all the time. Or when all the, uh, well, I'm in Florida, so we get hit by hurricanes a lot. So we see all the power companies come down, you know, I-75, the interstate's just like got a bunch of power trucks from other states coming to help us rebuild our, our power infrastructure. But I do think that they're like, I, I hope at least that some, uh, good comes out of this as far as us looking at these systems and ensuring that they do have some sort of like technological requirements that allow for surge capacity. I think, I think that would be important or, or some way to make sure our government systems have some certain level of, of resilience or accountability. I'm not sure if there is, I'm completely out of my zone here. Yeah, it's complicated. There's a lot of factors, some of them technical and a lot of them that are not technical. I I think we are in a spot today that is kind of nice in that the the idea of what we now call the cloud, right? AWS, Azure, Google, the public clouds. And they're uh, it turns what we've seen that they're not infinite in their scaling, but you know, they're for most of us, they're able to um, handle any surge that we can throw at them, right? Uh, unless again, like the pandemic threw such big surges that um, from everybody, it was hard for like Microsoft, you know, was unable to build out as fast as they wanted to in order to handle it. But Zoom's bank account got full too. Yeah. Like their bank says, we can't take any more of no your money. More money. <laughs> it's filled. <laughs> but, but I think, you know, from a technical perspective, um, unlike in the past, we're, we're closing in on the point where computing power um, is not unlike an electrical utility. It's not infinite, but um, in any given situation, you're probably going to be able to surge or, or boost into elastic capacity. But that assumes that you've written your software to be able to do that. And that's where it gets tricky, right? And that just because we can do something, um, building software that can take advantage of cloud elasticity is more expensive than building software that is done in the kind of the old fashioned monolithic approach. 
And so some businesses are doing, are, are building new systems that do that. And some are looking at it going, ah, it's just cost prohibitive. We, you know, we, it'd be awesome, but it's, you know, it's not worth it to us. And, um, you know, then you get into the government space and government generally ends up uh, for a variety of reasons. Some are good and some are bad, but uh, they go for low cost, you know, bids and, and so forth. And so I'm, I'm less than thoroughly optimistic that, that government systems, for example, are ever going to be built for uh, true elasticity just because it's, it is, it's expensive and hard to build those systems. How did you get involved with Magentic? So my career, uh, I started in a small company that uh, built software for uh, concrete ready mix companies. Um, and, and that's what we did. We, we built software for or tracking and, and making sure all the trucks got there on time and taking orders. And from there, I moved into a, a company that was a biomedical manufacturing company. And, uh, you know, totally different deal uh, because I went from, uh, you know, being somebody who literally was building the product that was being sold into a traditional IT role where we were um, just keeping the company running and the company did stuff that had nothing to do with computers. And after that, I got into consulting and I worked at a consulting firm for, I think, almost seven years, six and a half years. And that's when I started uh, got into professional speaking and started writing books and that sort of thing. So this was by that point, we're in the mid nineties and uh, the company that I worked for at the time uh, was starting to see some, you know, measurable benefits from uh, my activities, right? Cause I was out speaking at some pretty high profile conferences and, and uh, one of my books became uh, extremely popular. This was in the late nineties um, sold, you know, I think over a hundred thousand copies, which for a computer book is pretty amazing. And they were like, yeah, we, we love the fact you're doing that and you can keep doing it, but you know, you need to make sure you're taking vacation when you speak at these conferences and, you know, get your, you know, 55 to 60 hours of work in and you can continue to write books in the evenings all you want. And, uh, this was also the point when I, we had my wife and I had two young kids just then. And, uh, you know, basically it was unsustainable, um, to essentially have two jobs and, and have a family. And so there was a, a guy in the community, uh, you know, you get involved in any regional community and, and they're not very big, right? The number of people in Atlanta or Minneapolis or even New York that are in actively involved is not a huge pool of people. And, uh, so anyway, I got to know this guy. His name was Greg, and and he started coaching me, uh, you know, mentoring me on on just ways that I might try and convince my employer to recognize my value. And after trying this sort of thing for you know, a year year and a half, maybe, um, and getting nowhere, I finally I went back to Greg, who also owned a competitive company, and I said, "Hey, Greg, um, all that stuff you've been." you know, suggesting and, and trying to coach me to do, you actually believe that. And, and he said, well, why? <laughs> he <laughs> said, well, cause it hasn't been working over here, but maybe I could come work for your company. And uh, he's like, oh yeah. And so that's, uh, that's what ultimately happened. Cause he, he was one of the co-founders of Magenic. 
And so I, I ended up going to Magenic because uh, the owner of the company, and, and this to this day kind of boggles my mind. He was coaching me on how to be more effective for his competitor. And uh, I mean, that's, that's a level of integrity. I don't think you see every no, day. He was, he was building a relationship with an intelligent person. Well, I think that's how he sees it. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, but a, a lot of folks, I don't, I, you know, I don't know. A lot of people wouldn't help build up somebody that was working for a competitor. Um, you, you know, I, I agree, especially, especially 10 years ago where like, or 15, 20 years ago when coopetition wasn't as prevalent as it is today. Right. Yeah. I mean, it today was more campy back in the day. <laughs> totally. It true. was, I, it was, it was, I agree. And yeah, I think our industry is healthier now in that regard than it was back then. Um, but, but yeah, in the end I, I did, I, I came to work for Magenic and, and, uh, Magenic has been extremely supportive over the years of, uh, me, you know, writing and speaking and, and being a, a public per, uh, persona and thought leader, um, and also, uh, working in various roles inside of Magenic. So it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. I, I encourage people Constantly, I had one of a uh, couple authors on the first year I was doing this podcast, and one of them had said the best way to learn a topic is to write a book about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I often have people because at this point I've written, geez, I don't know, twenty, well, well over twenty books, um, and I, I people are like, hey, you know, should I write a book? And I'm like, well, yeah, the first book I wrote. Um, was a big learning experience and it took 10 months and I literally lost friends over it. Um, I mean, it it's not for the faint of heart. And um, so, I, I, but I think you're right. I mean, you can broaden that topic too. If, if you really want to know something um, inside and out, you have to you know teach it. And so whether that's teaching through a blog, teaching through a book, teaching by speaking or creating classes online or whatever, um, but for you to teach a topic, you have to understand it in such a deep way that um, obviously you're going to become an expert yourself. Yeah, I should have like put an asterisk there to write a good book. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so have you, do you have any personal uh, authors that you that you follow in technology that you followed for a long time? Yeah, believe it or not, I don't read very many technical books. Um, back, back when there were still bookstores, and yeah, I know they still exist, but um, yeah, I would go and uh, browse through books. And what I found usually more often than not is that uh, you know, you've got a, a 300 page book or 200 page book, and somewhere in the middle of it is the solution to the problem that you've been wrestling with. And, and, you know, and then you buy the book, at least I used to. Um, and I probably would never actually read the book, but I, I would buy it because that like three pages in the middle <laughs> that, that solved my problem was totally worth the, the cost of the book, right? Um, but now, the, you know, you can't do that through Amazon. There's no way to browse through the book to find the three pages and then go, oh, thank God, I'll, I'll buy the book. And so, you know, and, and nowadays you just search the web and probably end up on Stack Overflow or somewhere like that. And hopefully the three pages, uh, you know, the, 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 the kernel of what you needed is available on somebody's blog or something, right? 
you and still so, pay for it on Slack Overflow. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, just not with cash. No, no, you pay for it with time or whatever. Yeah, that's so. We'll say that. We'll say yeah. time. <laughs> Trying to be nice, um, but it, it is. Um, yeah, the world is is definitely changed, and uh, so I don't. Yeah, you know, I, I still write books, but I don't do traditional publishing. I write everything and publish it myself online. Um, you know, because, uh, yeah, I guess for a variety of reasons. Because but it, why? Because like the publisher as the usefulness of distribution or helping invest in someone that doesn't already have an audience. But if you've built an audience and you write and the audience will purchase it and that's useful and you're providing to the economy and the industry, then it basically just cuts that resistance out. You said that very well. I, I, I wasn't sure I wanted to dive into that, but yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, if you don't yet have an audience and or a marketing platform, you almost have to have a publisher. But yeah, I had a I had went through I think three or four different publishers over time, um, and you know over a period of, of fifteen years and built up a market and, and a name. And um, so it's not the value that a publisher brings to me isn't as great as it used to be that's there's no doubt yeah i i do amazon i use the amazon publish it was called like create space but i think amazon kind of bought them Mm -hmm. but it's beautiful because people buy the book and then it gets printed on demand and shipped to them and then they handle return they handle everything and i just get checks at the end of the month (laughs) yep I get, I get 70, 70 ACHs. Do you have Amazon? <laughs> Do you get that too? No, no? I, I actually run my own store. And so I, everything comes oh. through PayPal. So are you shipping it too? Well, it's all PDF. I, I don't even print, oh, it's a, all PDF. print a book. What, what's these days. Yeah. I, I just, I'm not sure that the value is there um, in having a paper book anymore. So especially for tech stuff. Cause you can just bring it up in PDF, hit control F and find what you want. Right. Just start searching. So. And you can copy and paste. Copy and paste. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's hard to beat. Um, but yeah. what am I going to do with all that time? I was going to spend typing it in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, we didn't cover cloud trends. No. What's going on in the cloud? What are the, what are some of the top trends going on there? Yeah, that's uh, some content that we just put together uh, fairly recently and, and put out on the Magenic website. And it's uh, and, and I've done a, a couple online webcasts around this topic as well, that really looking at the fundamental nature of the cloud as it is today and then where it seems to be going just in the next few months, right? Next six to 12 months. And you know, I think about these trends and, and look at uh, what we're seeing is the expansion of, or, or maybe broadening of the definition of cloud to include private clouds that are in your data center, as well as public clouds. Um, you know, like in, in most cases, when people hear the cloud, they think AWS or, or Azure um, and maybe Google. And, uh, but increasingly what we're starting to see is uh, it's become cost effective to really run your own cloud in your own data center and be that by buying an appliance like an Azure Stack appliance or a, Google, or a AWS Outpost appliance, like literally just wheel in the hardware and plug it in. 
Um, that's one way. Uh, or um, you know, using like uh, Red Hat or Canonical or VMware um, all have offerings that allow you to set up a Kubernetes cluster uh, in your data center. And, and that's really the uh, uh, so second big trend is this idea of uh, we're all shifting slowly but surely into a container-based deployment model for servers. And Kubernetes seems to be the de facto winner for the way that you orchestrate all of these things. And now, like I said, um, you know, the, the private cloud vendors like VMware offer you a managed Kubernetes offer. You just, you know, say, I need a cluster and, you know, voila, you've got a, a few minutes mm -hmm. later, you've got a cluster and, and the public cloud does the same thing. You go up to any uh, Google or Microsoft or Amazon and say, I need a Kubernetes cluster. And 10 minutes later, you've got one. And uh, it's kind of becoming the, the universal base fabric for, uh, you know, building cloud solutions. And, so those two trends, I think, tie together to create this idea that, well, maybe I should have a hybrid cloud where I am running some of my stuff in my own data center, and when I need to, I run some of it in the public cloud, or maybe I'm always running it in the public cloud except for certain pieces due to regulatory or privacy concerns that I need to run uh, in my own. You know, there's different motivations for this, but... HIPAA, and yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, or, or GD... Uh, uh, now I'm drawing a blank on the uh, acronym, but the European Privacy Laws (GDPR), um, uh, uh, that sort of thing. So, um, we, you and I, already talked about uh, my hopes for security, but that's another uh, cloud trend. Is I that at least in the paper that we put together, uh, is this idea that um, as you migrate your code and modernize your code to work in the cloud, that uh, Ideally, you're, you're also taking this opportunity to do static coding, code scanning uh, around security and really um, building security into your process. Um, so that, um, that's a knock on wood. I, I really hope that turns out to be the case. So have you, have you noticed that you have a certain type of niche customer, like niche customer? I don't know how to say it, but uh, <laughs> we could say it a hundred ways. But have you noticed you get like a certain cluster of customers in a specific area? We really don't. Um, you know, we have, because our focus has always been, uh, you know, what are we, 25 years old now as a company, um, it, but we've always been focused on uh, technology and being technical, providing technical expertise and, and the capability of building complex software. And we care less about uh, specific verticals like finance or manufacturing or healthcare. And, and um, so we have done a lot of work in the financial space and we've done a lot of, you know, FinServe and FinTech and uh, insurance. But we uh, at times have done huge amounts in uh, online retail, for example, um, or healthcare. And, uh, you know, so we have business analysts and some of those folks are, are have a lot of specialization in certain verticals because that's their background. But from a technology perspective, um, to a really large degree, you know, when you sit down to build a Java enterprise app, in healthcare and you sit down to build a Java enterprise app in, in FinTech, 
the actual Java enterprise parts don't change, right? The, the, the technology, the, the understanding of how to make the cloud work, um, you know, all, all these things are unaffected by the, the vertical business that you're operating in. And so they're usually customers, like their mindset when they're coming to you or they first call you up is help us with this Java environment or what are they usually calling about? No, they're usually calling because they have a business problem. Uh, okay. That, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's we, we need to solve this problem. We don't have the expertise or we don't have the bandwidth um, or some combination thereof. Um, and we're looking for some help. Um, and so sometimes, you know, we'll come in at, at a very high level and help with uh, envisioning of and fleshing out of the problem itself. Um, and, and that's uh, what we call digital services, uh, which that's a, a, a smaller part of our overall work, but it's a nice area to be. Um, more commonly, uh, the customer already pretty much knows what they want to do. They just don't know exactly how to get there because maybe they haven't yet used the cloud and they want to tap into our expertise because we have a lot of that expertise. Um, or, or they um, have used the cloud, are using the cloud, and uh, they just need feature teams. Uh, you know, maybe, like we've got uh, one of our bigger projects right now. I'm not even sure how many feature teams are on it total. I think we've got eight or nine from Magenic and then there are other feature teams from the client that, you know, and so we're, we're basically providing a combination of expertise, but also probably more importantly, just plain old, you know, labor bandwidth, um, you know, get things done. And so do you, have you noticed any like trends and in, in the business problems people are calling up about, or is it like, Hey, how do we move our business to cloud or, or is there a trend in the problems? There definitely is a trend around cloud that, um, yeah, and, and I think it's for, I'm sure companies like Microsoft and, and Amazon, it's been a slog, right? That uh, Azure uh, just turned 10 years old recently, uh, which is hard to imagine. The, this whole cloud thing has been going on for more than 10 years. And it's really only maybe in the last three that um, companies, pretty much all companies at this point, I think, are seriously considering and or are actively moving things into the cloud. And you know, there was a lot of resistance. It was too expensive or it was too risky or you know, a variety of, of concerns or, or regulatory issues. And I think we're at a point now where all of the, the big public clouds um, have a fair number of certifications from a um, you know, legal perspective and, and liability perspective. And, um, enough of the, you know, we talked about the type A, B, and C uh, developers. That applies to companies, too. So there's been enough type A companies that have actually said, oh, we'll take the risk. We'll make it happen. Um, and now we, we can look at them and say, hey, they succeeded. Uh, yeah, maybe they had some pain because that's what you get with being a type A. <laughs> but, <laughs> but they succeeded. And so now the type B, which is, of course, the center of the big part of the bell curve, right? The type B organizations and type B developers are, are looking at that going, hmm, yeah, okay. The, the, the cost is low enough, the value is high enough, and the risk is controllable enough that now is the time. And so, yes, that, that is probably the single biggest trend going on in the industry right now is looking at existing apps or and or uh, new apps uh, and, and figuring out ways to build them 
uh, either get them running in the cloud or to build them to be truly cloud native. That's it's exciting. It's exci- It's like they the early adopters, the A's. You know, they came in, and then the B's. I mean, it's been around for ten years, right? Yeah, so, right. <laughs> I mean, it's like you just get comfortable with the fact that it's around, and it's not a new trend anymore. And it's just like everybody's doing it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes it really easy for the companies who who aren't the trendsetters uh, to say you start asking the questions of discovery, like why is this so successful for everybody, and why are we not there? Yeah, it's exactly right. And one thing, yeah, I've I've been in the industry long enough that you know, when I was a young developer, I just, everything seemed to move so slow. It's like, why, why aren't we adopting this tech? I mean, this, this new technology would make things so much better. And, um, after a while you start to realize that, that enterprises move at a, let's say stately pace. <laughs> You're being nice. Again. <laughs> I, I am being nice. It's, it's, but they do. I mean, yeah. And, and so, and, and I think it's funny because then you get vendors, um, you know, like Microsoft or Google or anybody else that, that they come out with a new product or a new version of Windows or a new development tool or they're like, oh, man, this is going to be awesome. It's going to change the world. And I'm like, well, it might, but it's going to change it over a five to 10 year period because that's the speed that enterprises work in. And, um, you know, when you, when you build enterprise software, you know, you, you build something that costs millions of dollars. And it's going to have to run for 10, 15, 20 years, largely unchanged to recoup that huge investment. And that means that during the life of that app, um, you know, it's not going to be, it's unlikely to shift uh, onto a new major platform or a, a new major tool because it's just not cost effective. And, uh, you know, the, and every generation of new developers that comes in, of course, was just like I was. And they're like, oh, why are we moving so slow? If you, if you were to rewrite this using the you know, new modern technology, it would be so much better. Um, and, and that's probably true. But we're still recouping that you know, $10 million it costed to build the thing in the first place. So. And then you notice that you know, some edges of the conversation get farther ahead when the closer they are to business value. Mm -hmm. So for example, if I can deliver something that's valuable to the customer and it can, and we don't have it today and it can only be done with this new technology, then that's like a quick pass, right? Yep. Yeah, totally right. Good analogy. Yeah. Florida coming through right there. (laughs) The one good thing from Florida today. (laughs) Quick pass. (laughs) A good analogy. (laughs) But, uh, but you're, you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's, that's at the end of the day, it always comes down to this stuff costs a lot. Building software costs a lot of money. And so either I've got to save a lot of money by, you know, the software is going to save me a bunch of money or it's going to make me a bunch of money uh, or both. And, um, it, it, uh, at the end of the day, the business people are the ones that, that are paying us to do you know, hopefully it's stuff that we love doing, um, but it, we have to provide value. I love it. I think that's a great, great way to wrap it up. What do you think? Sounds great to me. Man, this is awesome. Rage, this is, the, this is such a good conversation. I really enjoyed hanging out with you today. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. So thank you very much. 